Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. We are entering a little bit of a slow season here for the NFL. So what I have for you this week is a discussion on the best front offices and worst front offices in the NFL. A lot of this will be based on some analytics stuff that I, that I have based upon the analytics teams there. Also what they've done over the last few years. I think there'll be some some expected results, some unexpected results there. We have a little bit of an extended stick to sports segment here where I'm going to talk about a review of a book by Daniel Kahneman and Cass Sustein, who also there's some other people there who, who are working with this book and has a lot of lessons that apply directly to really any sort of decision making and analysis, but especially for what we're seeing in football. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff there it was brought to my attention by Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer. And we're also going to go into some other things that are going on outside of the sports world that can apply to what we're seeing here. And as we're going through the offseason here, especially into June, I know it's going to be a little bit quieter. So my plan, and I already have some interviews lined up tentatively, is to add into the feed either a replacement of the weekly episode as an interview or to do it in conjunction and have an extra weekly show with an interview. And I'm going to look through some different people I know who work in the research departments and the analytics departments and in coaching with game management for NFL teams, uh, get them on the pod. I already have one interview tentatively lined up there and discuss some of these issues. And I know there's, there's a weird balance when we're doing some of these interviews, you want to you know, not get them in trouble for revealing too much. I think that's an important part when you bring a guest on is you don't want to see them get fired for what you were talking about, but you, you want to make it interesting and you want to make sure you're getting some, some good nuggets out of there because you know, people who work for teams, obviously they're not necessarily looking to give away a ton of different information. So we have that to look forward to for the next few weeks, but let's start first with a couple little news items. Uh, you know, the biggest thing that's still out there in the news right now is Julio Jones and what's going to happen with the trade or the potential trade. It looks like it's going to happen. If you want to look back to last week's episode of Unexpected Points, I discuss in depth not only the misunderstanding from some people about the fact that Julio Jones really does need to be traded once the Falcons have gone down the route for wanting to keep some of the younger players just because of how bad their, their cap situation is the next couple of years. And I also discussed the Tennessee Titans as being the most likely location, primarily because of the fact that they're one of the few teams where you look at all the different boxes they need to check. You know, are they competing? Do they really, really need receiver talent? And I think a lot of teams don't think they do right now. So that's something that they definitely need with Josh Reynolds as their number two and really no one else behind that. And then lastly, cap space, where they don't have a ton of cap space, but they can make some room. So again, we'll, we'll see if the Titans are now kind of the leading contender in some people's minds. So I think that was a little prescient to talk about them last week. Um, some other things I saw on the news, one was the fact that the Jets are in fact hiring a game management coach, Matt Burke. He looks like he used to work for the Eagles in some different defensive uh, capacities, and he's going over there too. So I think this is a huge development. Um, every team should really have one of these guys, and hopefully I'm going to have some people on the pod for my guests who really work specifically in this role, if I can line them up, because I think there's a lot of focus on analytics as far as picking players, doing things like that. But I, I believe there are still some really easy game management types of situations that teams could be picking up some, some value from that they're not really taking fully advantage of at this point. Uh, okay, let's get to the first part here, and that is the front office rankings. But before I do that, I just want to hit up really quickly to let you guys know about the fact that PFF is having a best ball guide that we're putting out right now. So if you want to look at that, that is something that we're putting out. Not only it's a tiered draft kit, there are uh, targets that you can stack in there, seeds as most favorable matchups, everything else. If you're doing any best ball drafts right now, we have a promo going on with underdog with promo code PFF. So you make sure you go over there. You can get, uh, I think it's $10 and then also a free PFF subscription there. And so that's huge. That's some stuff you can do. And then also, you know, check out the other PFF podcast, the two for one drafts podcast, Ian Hurts fantasy football podcast, all this stuff's going to be coming up as we get closer and closer into the season. And you can take advantage of all the different content that we have here. Okay. Let's get into top front office rankings. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit what I believe 
to be the three worst front offices and the three best front offices. And I'm also going to talk about some, you know, honorable mentions, we could say, in either direction. And yeah, it's tough as I'm going through this. I think I may have a slight bias towards some of the guys who haven't been around as long, maybe because they have less of a chance to make a mistake. Maybe it's because some of the moves that you're making from an analytical perspective are easier to see with teams that are coming up from a rebuild as opposed to maintaining um, their situation once they're already on top of the league. But let's go ahead and and do this here. So it was, it was a little bit tough to figure out who I was going to have near, near the bottom of the rankings, but we'll hit the bottom guys first. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll get a little bit of, of hate from some of these teams on here, but uh, the first team that I'm going to go with, and this will be the third worst team in the league when it comes to front offices. And I'm going to go with the Chicago bears here. Now I know friend of the podcast, Evan Silva and Matt Kelly, they did their roundup of every week, every year that they attack one particular front office who has done a very poor job and the bears were getting the grief from them this year. I think if you go back a little bit here, there's just a number of different things here. I mean, the Khalil Mack trade, I don't think it was as bad as maybe it's being interpreted now. Mack was very strong. That was seen as a strong, strong win when it first happened. The problem is, of course, anytime you are giving up draft capital and significant draft capital to pay a player at the top of the market, that ends up being a problem. That's a problem. We're going to go and do that. So I think that that ends up being a little bit of an issue for them when they first got, got there. Then obviously you had the issues, issues with holding on to Mitch Trubisky probably a little bit too long. Then you had um, you know, trading up to draft running backs, doing things like that. There just hasn't been a consistent philosophy going forward there with what they're going to do. And they got a little bit behind the eight ball because they didn't have the young talent coming in, despite the fact that, um, Ryan Pace was able to make some later round selections there. So I'm going to put them near the bottom there. Although I think that there are a couple of other teams that are very, very close. One being the giants, the giants are probably tied. I would say for, for the third worst, I know that Dave Gettleman this year, shockingly traded back a couple of different times, something that he had not done much at all in the past, but it's really that Saquon Barkley pick. You just can't get over what that has done to the team This was the 2018 draft. There was a lot of different quarterbacks available near the top of the draft. You're taking the running back with the second overall pick. And the problem isn't just in a vacuum taking Barkley because running backs can be pretty valuable, at least the amount of production they're able to put up early in their careers. So it's not the worst deal to have Barkley through that rookie contract but that is a big big contract for Barkley I mean if you look at the the top paid running backs in the NFL right now let me just glance at this really quickly to see where does Barkley show up here so remember Barkley on that rookie contract is right in the top 10 he's number nine here he's averaging about eight million per year so Again, you're drafting someone to make them a top 10 player at that position. It becomes extremely, extremely difficult. And well, I think what we're going to see, maybe not this offseason, potentially though, um, but definitely next offseason, is what are they going to do about extending him? You put yourself in a position where if you take a running back that early, you're almost guaranteed to have to extend them because they, number one, they're going to be productive. You're literally turning around and handing the ball, or if you're doing pass plays to a, to a running back, it's just very easy to get them the ball. So they're normally are going to be productive. And, you know, Barkley is a great running back. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, so you have a player who is going to be deemed a hit almost all of the time, right? So there's that. But number two is you cannot really trade the player. If they were going to go out this offseason to look who may want Barkley in a trade, if they're going to do this next offseason, the trade capital that you're going to get back for someone who's willing to take Barkley and pay him where he's going to be, I'm not certain of this, but I think there's a good chance that he's going to be 
the top paid running back in the NFL when you consider the fact that not only does he have the highest draft capital of anyone in the league, he's been very productive if he can stay healthy. Um, that'll help bolster his case quite a bit. But we're also going to see the cap rising in future years. So I think he's going to be the top paid running back in the league. So you have to have someone who's willing to trade assets in order to make that happen. And for most first round players, at least for quarterbacks, the having that fifth year option is really good because you're getting a discounted price here. Now for Barkley, that fifth year option is going to be seven, $8 million. It could be more. So again, if you compare that to, to the amount of money that he's making, it's still going to put him in that top 10. You're not going to be getting much of a discount there for Barkley on that fifth year option. You don't have even that leverage of saying, you know what, we'll just let him play it out and then we'll see what happens. You kind of have to make that decision whether or not after four years, if that's going to be enough um, with, with, want, with what you're going to do with him. And if you let him go and he's not, he's not, he's going to sign a big contract somewhere else, but is a third round, you know, comp pick enough is a second round pick enough. Um, could they possibly get a first round pick? It's, it's doubtful. Uh, maybe a second round pick, but are you going to want to give up a face of the franchise type of player like that? So McCaffrey's making about $16 million a year. He's the top running back in the league. So I think we can expect Saquon to be above that amount. So that just really, really makes it tough. Gettleman, like I said, he did trade back this year, although Kadarius Tony wouldn't have been my first pick there. He's been okay with the free agent signings. You know, they built a pretty good defense there with Bradbury and others, so I'm not going to get on him too much. But that's why he's kind of near so, but not quite in the bottom rankings. Now, uh, the two teams I'm going to put at the bottom of the front office rankings is number one, we're going to go with the Raiders. I'm sorry, number number two, we're going to go with the Raiders. And what can we say about the Raiders here? So since Gruden and Mayock have been there, they were on the other side of the Cleo Mack trade. Well, at least Gruden was. I don't think Mayock was there yet. So, so Gruden was on the other side of the Cleo Mack trade, so that was good. But then you look at the players that they've drafted, and I think we've documented this um, over the years, is that they are just drafting players way earlier than what you would have hoped for when – when, when we're talking about here, whether it's Cleveland Farrell with the number four pick overall, Josh Jacobs at 24, Jonathan Abram at 27. These are all players that you think you could have probably gotten a little bit later than that. Um, you had even, even before, if we go back to the 2018 draft, and like I said, I think that's before um, Mayock got there. Even then, if you look at what, what happened there, they got Colton Miller, which I think ended up working out well. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as bad. But that's really the last player that they've had who's ended up having a pretty strong impact. Again, we skip forward to 2020. So what happened in 2020 with, um, with the Raiders, right? Um, so in 2020, we're, if you look at the, the different selections that they made and how it ended up working out, Again, it's guys that were just taken much earlier than what you would have hoped for. Henry Ruggs is the first wide receiver off of the board. That was a bit early. Damon Arnett, there were some question stuff with him with some legal issues and others. And it looks like they just kind of grabbed him a little bit early. Or Sorry, that was with Conley that they, that, that they had the legal issues before. Uh, Arnett was just a little bit early compared to some others. And if you, if you go down now to 2021, and I think this was the big theme that we saw from from Vegas this year is the fact again they're just taking these players early whether it's Leatherwood at 17th overall which most people had him in you know maybe the the second round uh they ended up doing the flip of getting Trayvon Morig a little bit earlier than would have expected but then again again when the later players that they're getting anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70 picks earlier than what you would have expected based upon what our draft guide said and what some consensus ranking said so that's the reason that they're going to be down near the bottoms of my rankings for top front offices and they really don't have much of an analytics presence uh i know that it was sent out a list from um seth walder over at espn he put out a list of all the different front offices and who they have working for them and again when we look through 
with uh, the Raiders. They have a couple of guys who are working there, but I'm not sure they're the most involved that, that we've seen uh, for some other teams. So until they get a little bit more involved there, and I think that they're actually making a big impact, I'm just going to be a little bit hesitant to, to put together you know, some, some information to, to really that they're really moving forward as far as analytics are concerned. All right, let's go next. And this is at the bottom. And this is pretty tough to do when we say we have a new front office with Nick Casario there, but I'm actually going to put the Texans <laughs> as being the worst in the league. I think as long as we have, uh, you know, Jack Easterby still there, it's really tough to figure out what they're doing. They've had an awful cap situation. They've traded away so many picks in the past. Uh, the Deshaun Watson trade, they traded one away there, which is justifiable, of course. They had to trade another to um, – they had to trade two more picks as part of the Laramie Tunsil trade, and they're still feeling the effects of that one. Duke Johnson ended up trading away a pick for – so just so many different plays that they've traded away picks for that they have no incoming young talent. And if you look at what they did this year, they traded up for, for Nico Collins where they just don't have draft capital in the first place. You can't be doing things like that. And they made about 150 small signings across the board. And in some ways, maybe there's some upside there. If one player tends to pop or you weren't expecting him to pop, but generally it's just going to be really hard to, to make a leap forward, especially if you want to rebuild too, you don't necessarily want to be spending all this capital to have, you know, four different running backs at your disposal now where you could have just had a much, a much thinner allocation of, of your cap dollars, save that for next year and then go ahead and bottom out this season. If Deshaun Watson is going to be playing, which it looks like he isn't. And again, it's not really this front office's fault that they don't have the confidence of Deshaun Watson or the quarterback there, but it's going to be tough going forward. And if you look at uh, David Culley, the, the the coaching sign, I'm sure he's a fine, fine gentleman, but again, it's not a top-notch guy that they're really putting into that position. So I think they can be questioned going forward. So again, Texans, I'm going to say are the worst front office ranking that I'm giving out based upon those who've been around long enough to really, to really rate, uh, despite the fact that they haven't been around enough, I'm still going to say that they are rateable. And the Raiders, the Bears, and and the Giants are kind of a, a tie for three, for the third worst. Now to go to our top. First, I'm going to mention some some honorable mentions, and the Buffalo Bills are one where I really think I could have kept them in there. The only reason I didn't is that they largely built the franchise through free agency, right? So if you look at what they had done, obviously Josh Allen was a big thing, was getting that pick and having that him take that jump forward this year. I think that's that's been huge. But if you look at what they've done to build around him, it's just not something that's typically going to be a great way to go about things, to build in free agency. But they've been able to hit on a lot of those. Uh, Now they had the trade for Stephon Diggs, and I think that is a definite brilliant move. You could check that up and say that is an undervalued player on a very reasonable contract. I mean, let's look at Diggs' contract here. And they just restructured Diggs today. Uh, They're able to move some of that money forward to maybe free up money for a Josh Allen extension, maybe a Zach Ertz trade. We'll see what what ends up happening here. But if you look at his contract, um. I mean, you're looking at the salary cap charge here this season, 14 million, 13 million next season, 13 million the season after that. So when they, when they brought him over, they had, you know, four year window. They only had guaranteed salaries the first two years. And we're talking about cap numbers that were pretty even about 13, 14 million a year. That's a great contract uh, and a great trade for a first round pick for that. I know it ended up being Justin Jefferson, who's cheaper, who looks great, but you know, it's a late ish, mid late ish first round pick. So you can't expect that always to happen there. So, uh, so that was a unprecedentedly great move. Now I think they've hit the right positions when they're looking in free agency, but again, it's a little bit lucky that they've been hitting on all these. Now they spent a pretty hefty sum on Mitch Morse was one of their bigger signings. 
at center where he's making about 11 million a year. They had the flexibility to do so because of Josh Allen on the rookie contract and they didn't really have a lot of other expensive players. Now they signed a couple of different guards, John Feliciano, Quentin Spain. So they, they did that. They went into the tackle market in free agency. And I think guards in particular are a good way if you can build depth and they really went around and said, you know, they drafted Cody Ford. They got Deion Dawkins who had been around from before this regime was, was here, at least before Brandon Bean was there, but still they, they extended him. So I think they have, they spent a little bit more money on, on Dawkins, which is good. You want to lock down that tackle position is really tough to fill. And then filling out with at least a average to above average players to build that offensive line that doesn't have any holes. That was a really smart job by by Brandon being there to build around and give that to Josh Allen. Then in free agency going into the 2019 season we're talking about here in free agency, they also brought in not only Cole Beasy but also John Brown. So building out that receiver core. Get, and that's why he took a step forward in 2019 and then in 2020 the huge leap for Josh Allen when you add in Stefan Diggs and what and what they've done there. So that rebuild is really really impressive. Now, we haven't gone to the point in the cycle where they're really going to have to pick and choose who they're going to keep. They're going to have to figure out what to do about a new contract for Diggs eventually, what to do about Josh Allen's contract. Uh, they spent a couple of third-round picks on running backs for, for Singletary and for Moss, so I'm not in love with that, uh, being that they don't really use those guys that much. They kind of use Josh Allen as a running back, but not the worst usage of, of capital. Um, and of course, you know, how they built everything around and, and they've, they've built out the coaching staff, I think has been really, really solid there. And they've given Allen, you know, every easy sort of move that he can have as far as using play action, uh, using early down passing, using everything else that's going to give Josh Allen a chance to be his best. So I think that they're right on the cusp. I'm not quite putting him in, in the top three, but they're another team that's really a, a pretty easy choice for an honorable mention there. Another team I'm going to say is an honorable mention, very, very close, is the Los Angeles Chargers. So for the Chargers, it's, you know, Tom Telesco and the Chargers, it's not something that you can look at and be wowed necessarily by a lot that's gone on there. Uh, I think the Justin Herbert pick is probably something you can be wowed by. Uh, the fact that they had Joey Bosa going back and, you know, Telesco has been there a while. He's one of the longest uh, tenured guys. That's something you can be, you can be wowed by, but again, they got, that's something that kind of fell to them right at that spot. So that ended up working out well. So I, I'm not necessarily wowed by anything they've done there, but there's not a lot you can point to that they've done poorly. The one thing that they had done poorly was figuring out the offensive line, right? And the fact that Herbert did not have much protection last year on that offensive line. So this year they really revamped everything on that, on that offensive line. I think that's the key and that's really what's putting them as being maybe in the conversation, Telesco and the front office, they're maybe in the conversation for being one of the top, the top guys. They got Corey Lindsley at center. They got, um, they combined it. You know, they have Brian Beluga. They, they, they got last year, Belaga. They got last year. They have were able to draft for Sean Slater early. They have a lot of pieces. They can at least have an average, if not better than that offensive line. Now the mistakes that they made in San Diego. And I think these are pretty legitimate mistakes. I think it was, a legitimate mistake to take. And we're going back quite a few years here, but I don't think Mike Williams was really a top 10 pick. I doubt they're going to extend him after this year. You know, you have Keenan Allen on a pretty expensive deal. They drafted Josh Palmer. So I don't think they're going to extend him. He's on his fifth year option this season, but we'll end up seeing there. So Mike Williams, top 10 pick, not great. Going back even further to 2015, when they drafted Melvin Gordon to get that running game going, taking him in the, in the middle of the first round, not great, but it's not a recent deal. You know, this is not something where they've ended up spending even more capital on a running back after, of course, they have the undrafted free agent, Austin Eckler, uh, signed him to a, to a pretty nice deal and they've kept him under, uh, under wraps there. So if everyone can get healthy there with the chargers, Derwin James come back, uh, the offensive line rebuilt. I think Telesco is in the running for executive of the year, something like that. 
if the Chargers take that step forward and really can compete with the Chiefs for being the best team in the AFC West. Okay, let's get into the actual top three here. So for number three, I'm going to go with the Indianapolis Colts and Chris Ballard. Now, Ballard was a darling for analytical types because he traded back multiple times in multiple drafts. He really was focused on keeping dry powder and cap space, so he wasn't wasting that. He was keeping that to resign players. What we don't quite know about the Colts is there are rumors that they are not going to spend a ton of money. They're not going to be big spenders. Uh, whether that's a dictate from ownership or just the way that they they do business there. So I think you can, the, the, the one thing that people could point to to Ballard, which was an issue even before Andrew Luck left when they ended up making it to the divisional game, not the, not the AFC championship game, to the divisional game against the Chiefs in 2018 was the fact they had all this cap space that they didn't end up using. So I think that was a legitimate concern, but I'm not sure whether he was able to to really use that. And the fact that Ballard was able to survive this transition of Andrew Luck unexpectedly retiring a month before the season's going to start during a members during a preseason game where we all we all found out about what was going to happen. Uh, moving on, moving over to Jacoby Brissett, working through that, and then now going with Carson Wentz, which isn't necessarily the greatest value trade but he's got a fairly cheap contract and they're combining them with Frank Reich who they're going to they're hoping for something there so they're going for it so that's what the Colts have been doing recently and I think it's probably been the right move is they're going for it more and more they made the trade for the first round pick for DeForest Buckner and they're paying him as such they're they're still keeping the cap money though there and I think that's smart because they have Quentin Nelson coming up they have um Darius Leonard coming up, other guys that they're going to have to sign to a lot of money. So I think they've done some smart things here. But whenever Ballard has talked about the different moves he makes, talked about trading back, talked about the way that they use a couple of their analytics guys there, who I know are top notch, they've just really had a holistic view for how they're doing the draft and the free agency process. And they've been extremely patient. Now that patience uh, and that timer has sped up in the last couple of years, but I'm still going to put them near the top. Um, and I know that they drafted Jonathan Taylor running back in the second round last year. So not, not the greatest move there, but I think generally they've been good about hitting the positional value. Um, even if they're drafting a guard like Quentin Nelson, he really is that top, top notch guy. And they made a trade back before they took him to pick up three second round picks, which ended up being extremely valuable for them. So I'm going to put them at number three. Uh, number two, I'm going to go with our Cleveland Browns. So, for the Browns, I'm not quite ready to put them into number one, despite the fact that they've had Paul D. Podesta there as the head of strategy, reporting directly to the owner. They've had that structure there since he was brought in in 2016. So it's a, it's a longstanding structure, despite the fact that it went through when Sashi Brown was leading the personnel decisions, then over to John Dorsey, now over to Andrew Barry. So it survived that. So that I am confident that they've had that structure in. And the one thing they don't have is showing me how they're going to perform diff during different parts of the cycle. They, they don't have any mistakes that I've seen so far. But we've only been, especially with Andrew Barry, we've only been in the part of the cycle here where we're building. And with the stuff that we saw from the analytical side of the front office, and they have one of the most robust research and development departments over there. Uh, hopefully I'm going to get Dave Giuliani on the podcast who does used to do really a lot of their in-game management stuff. And then now is working on other research and development stuff there on the podcast to talk about what they're doing there, but they're, they have a really robust group there. I think they have four or five different guys uh, who are, who are working there exclusively on that sort of stuff. And again, they have entree, I believe now to the coaching staff with um, with Kevin Stefanski there, who is more of a analytically friendly coaching, coaching guy. So if you look at what they've done, they're taking the right types of players, whether it's the offensive tackle, whether it is a cornerback in the first round, whether it's linebackers who have range and skill there, uh, whether it's a safety coverage players. So they're really pushing hard on focusing on the passing game and defending the pass 
whether they're pushing too hard on that or not, we'll see. I think a lot of teams are going to try to run the ball on them quite a bit to see whether these guys who are more coverage players are really going to be able to tackle and deal with that. But I'm, I think that's the right way to go in that regard. They haven't made any bad signings, I wouldn't say. I mean, Austin Hooper wasn't the cheapest player. Um, let's just pull up Hooper here to see where he's at. I mean, he was the, I guess he was the, the number one tight end when he first signed his deal a couple of years ago, but he's been subsequently passed by an extension for Kelsey, George Kittle, Johnny Smith, and Hunter Henry. So he's still though number five, which is probably a little bit too expensive for him at, a, but it's only 10 million a year. That just shows you how, how cheap these tight ends are. Um, but the Browns haven't had to make tough decisions, right? They re-signed Miles Garrett and the number for Garrett, it's not, you know, it's not super expensive, but 25 million a year. I thought they might get a little bit more of a discount when they, when they made that deal, he was number one in the NFL. Now Joey Bosa has trumped that Joey Bosa, 27 million a year. That's really a huge deal. So they, you know, they brought back Garrett they're going to have to decide and they've already said they're doing, you know, fifth year option on Baker Mayfield. They did the fifth year option for David and Joku. They got um, Denzel Ward, who's going to have a contract that's going to come up in not too long. They're going to have to decide what to do with Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham. So they have to make a lot of decisions. They haven't made any tough decisions yet. And I think the toughest decisions that GMs make front offices make are when they decide either to trade back, to trade away from players who no one's going to fault them from taking, no one's going to fault them from taking the bigger name. And again, I talked about Ballard having done that a lot for the Colts and what really puts him up into that top three. And the other tough thing that you have to do is when you are a winning franchise in order to sustain winning, letting talent go this is talent that other teams might jump at signing so the Browns have not been in that position yet they haven't had to worry from a cap perspective about what they're going to do we're starting to get close on that now because if they extend Baker if they extend Denzel Ward and Miles Garrett those are gonna be three really huge contracts those are players who are all you know two number one former number one picks one number four overall pick. Um, and then they're going to have to decide whether someone like Jarvis Landry, who at the time when he first came in, he was, he was making, you know, almost top five wide receiver money You see where he is now. Uh, he's down there now. So, but he's still making $15 million per year. So in Beckham's at 18 million a year. So Beckham and Landry, what do you do? Do you take a risk there? And start drafting players a little bit earlier or looking in free agency for a little bit cheaper player. It's tough to find receivers on the free agent market. Do you let, you know, do you figure out what, what you're going to do, you know, in Joku, are you going to let him go probably um, after the fifth year option and decide what you're going to do there? Uh, so th there are decisions that are going to have to be made for the Browns. And I think that's when it's really going to prove to themselves, not whether they make the right result decision, but whether they're making the right process decision on these things. And that brings us to the number one team in the Kevin Cole, very unofficial front office rankings. And that is a team that has gone through the cycles and that is the Baltimore Ravens. Now for the Ravens, I know that Eric DaCosta has not been there as far as in the lead seat for an extremely long period of time. It's been a couple of years, but he has history in the organization and if you look at the way that they have done things over the years, no one's really been better at drafting, developing, and then making smart decisions on who stays and who goes, accumulating comp picks, and then rebuilding the cycle again. Um, and trading within the end of the first round to decide whether or not you can pick up extra players or move around and get back into the first round to pick up a player like Lamar Jackson, which they did there. And, and having that transition and picking up someone like Lamar Jackson, I mean, some of his luck, obviously, 
but it's just a huge value that they got there. One of the most valuable picks you're going to see because of the fact that it was at the end of the first round. Now I know you can complain and say, well, they drafted Hayden Hurst before that. That's true. Um, but they knew when they could get Jackson and they did it. And trades are also some of the areas where I think you can f- really, really find who are the smartest GMs out there because free agency can be a little bit of a crapshoot. And like, you know, like I said, the bills have done extremely well in free agency, but we don't know if that's a great, great process necessarily versus just great results. When it comes to trades, I think we can really grade these fairly well. And if you look at the fact that what they've done with the Ravens, they've been really good at picking up veteran talent on the cheap when they can. There seems to be this weird thing with the way that players are valued in the NFL where you have Laramie Tunsil or a Jamal Adams who are valued or Jalen Ramsey because of their younger age, they're valued in a, in a way where you're, they're talking about two first round picks. You're going to have to pay for them plus resign these huge contracts. And then if players get a little bit older, not on the full, full downswing of their careers, but if they get a little bit older, there seems to be this inflection point where they just lose a ton of value in the trade market, right? As teams are, are looking to move on. And that's when the Ravens have been able to swoop in on some guys, whether it's, uh, you know, getting Jason Peters for a, a player and a fifth round pick, I believe, getting Calais Campbell for a fifth round pick. Um, it's moves like that and then letting players go, Matthew Judon go, letting Zadarius Smith, who, you know, he did well, right? He did well for the for the Packers, but still they, they made that tough decision to let him go. And those are the hard decisions to make um, and get comp picks for that. Letting CJ Mosley go. Uh, who ends up with the Jets. All of these are reasons why they have sometimes, I think they have three first round picks in 2020 because of all the players, third round picks, excuse me, in 2020 because of all the um, all the, the two comp picks that got there. They got another fourth round comp pick that's going to continue on going forward as they let more and more players go. So some of it is being, is lucky that they've been lucky drafting. Some of it is building with the right players. Now, last season's draft, wasn't necessarily ideal with an off ball linebacker in queen in the first round and a running back in JK Dobbins in the second round, but nobody's perfect. Right. Um, they also, you know, Marquise Brown that, that they brought in, which hasn't been a hit, but they brought in a receiver there. They brought in Rashad Bateman. Uh, they had the Orlando Brown trade, which I like a lot. Um, they're not going to pay him left tackle money. They already have Ronnie Stanley on a new, on a new contract, they can't afford that. So what do they do? Well, they flip picks. They get in, they get that first round pick from the Chiefs and give up the second round pick. And then they say, here you go, here you go, Kansas City. You now can make him a top, you know, three, uh, $20 million a year left tackle if you want. We're going to take that draft capital. Uh, and we're going to roll it back in to to bring new players into the system. And the way they've been able to continually do that and churn through and have solid rosters, and this was, you know, with Joe Flacco in the past was their quarterback, but continually being a competing team is just extremely impressive. And that's really why you have to put them above some of the other teams, despite the fact that there are some mistakes that the Ravens have made. I'm still going to put them above teams like the Browns, who I haven't seen mis- make mistakes because of the fact that they've dealt with the most difficult part of the cycle which is letting the players go and making the tough choices, not always trading up, not always resigning guys and trying to fit them all in. Like we've seen other teams like the saints or the Eagles, or even the Minnesota Vikings do where they're just constantly trying to keep it together for one last push. You have to be willing to take some chances and to move on and to keep continually replenish the stock of your young talent. Cause that's where it all comes from in the NFL. And that's what the Ravens seem to understand better than almost anyone. Okay. Before we get on to the stick to sports segment, let me just hit our last ad here. And that is for Western and Southern in these uncertain times, life is full of questions. Like when should I start thinking about life insurance? I don't know. You got a mortgage, you got kids. That's probably a good time. Start thinking about uh, life insurance, but however, these difficult, these questions may be Western and Southern can help you answer them backed by over 130 years of experience together. We can look ahead and leave the unknown behind Western and Southern financial group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. 
compensate an endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, now for our last segment here, we're going to go with a little bit of an extended Stick to Sports segment. Stick to Sports. Stick to Sports. Stick to Sports. All right. You like that bell was, was added in there. Um, okay. So the stick to sports segment here, there's a couple different things I want, I want to talk about as part of this. Now, the first is you know, tangentially pretty related to sports here. And that is a new book that's out. And like I said, this came to my attention through Frisco Josh at Frisco Josh, our man, jo- Josh Hermsmeyer, football writer, analytics guy for 538. And it's a new book about noise. The title of the book is Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. It's by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Olivier Saboni, I want to say. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. And Cass Sustine, who is, this is, and it deals with noise, variability, and human judgments uh, that results from humans being variable individuals. So this is important because what it's talking about in this book is how do we recognize, not just try to cut down on noise, but be able to recognize when noise is there and what type of bias it is there. Cause there's, there's, there's two different types of bias we're talking about. You know, you have, you have bias where it's directional. Everyone's over in one direction. So it's not necessarily noisy, but everyone is, is off on, on their biases. Another one where you have bias, which is spread and which is noise that that's coming in here. Uh, for those who may know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman was another book in the past that he's made talking about different types of individual decisions and how you make them. Um, as far as how this one is working, they have some really interesting quotes in this review where they talk about how different things work. And when we're talking about noise here, we're not just talking about the variable of opinion. We're in subjective matters, but we're talking about in decisions that should be objective, but yet uh but yet the different opinions are all over the place and, and why that is the case. So there are different factors you could find. There are random factors you can find. And I thought this was pretty interesting. They're talking about how doctors order more cancer screenings in the morning and prescribe more opioids in the afternoon. So I think there's also things you could probably find within NFL teams of random factors of is it the first game you're watching, let's say, when you're scouting versus the last game that you're watching? Is there a systematic bias for how you're rating players based upon uh, you know, the ordering of different players as, as you're doing scouting or doing, doing film work? I think that's very important in something like, like the draft. Or if you're preparing for another team, right? If you're doing the advanced scouting for the team you're about to face, how does that work too? You know, the, the ordering of what you're doing and how you're watching. I think that's really important. And again, that can get down on, on the noise that's happening in your opinions just based upon these, these random factors. Um, they talk about something what they call decision hygiene, which is trying to figure out how can you reduce some of these errors through um, better judgments and predictions and it says the best way to do that is to have better judges and predictors. Now, who do they decide? Who are the people that they're saying here are the best judges and predictors? And to them, they say there are people who are actively open-minded, who are in a, s- a state of perpetual beta, they call it here. Now, uh, for people who spend too much time online, this is not you know Dan Campbell being an alpha and us nerds being betas. This is beta, meaning it's never a finished product, Right. It's always something that you're iterating on. It's always something that you're looking to improve. And that mindset is why often when it comes to decision makers, no matter what the field is, the best people you have in those positions are not experts. They are people who have access to expert opinions but they know how to make decisions. They are open-minded. They're willing to take in a bunch of different expert opinions. This goes back to a concept that I talked about reviewing the NFL draft when it came to what I call the super scout syndrome. And the problems with that is if you're relying upon yourself as being the number one expert, how open-minded are you going to be to the opinions of others? How open-minded are you going to be to your process potentially being flawed and being needed to be improved upon? I mean, the whole reason you're in that position in the first place is because you have the best process, because you have the best opinions, 
or that's what you may think. So you have to always constantly be looking for new ideas, bringing in new ideas. And this includes, you know, for teams where you're looking beyond not just scouting, but at analytics and the, and the work between those departments going back and forth and iterating off of each other and learning from each other in that area, uh, bringing up new ways to think about things. So you don't want to adhere to things that you've consistently done in the past because it's the way that things have been done. And that's always a huge problem, not only, especially for in-game decision-making, right? When we talk about going for and fourth down, we talk about whether you're willing to uh, use motion, use play action as teams are starting to adopt now. It's just like, this is what we've done in the past. So we're not necessarily going to do it. You have to always be inspecting those ideas to look to see if that's something that could get better. So I thought that was, was really interesting. And one of the other interesting things that, that I found here is they, they talk a little bit more about, okay, they're talking about objections that you could potentially have to this. And one of the biggest objections that they talk about, especially for trained experts, is that a trained expert likes to think that their experience, their hunches, and their gut feelings are invaluable. And they want to use discretion, right? They, this is exactly what it says here in this, in this review of the book. It says they rebel against the notion that their intuition could be supplemented by an algorithm. Now, what we find over and over again for a well-tuned algorithm is superior to a individual thinker, even an individual thinker who's only tweaking the results or using their gut feelings and intuitions on those algorithms. Um, I've had a lot of these discussions and another, actually another gentleman I'm hoping to have on the podcast as a guest is Daniel Stern. He's a coach with the Baltimore Ravens, uh, but he's a young guy. He's a Yale guy. So he kind of got like put in this lane of being uh, an analytical thinker type. And he worked a lot. There was an article written by Shio Kapadia at The Athletic about his work with the Baltimore Ravens and what they're doing on fourth downs, what they're doing in these in-game situations there. So I had a pretty detailed discussion with him and, and hopefully I'll get a chance to relive this discussion on the, on the podcast uh, when we were at the Combine a couple of years ago about the belief that someone like a coach, so John Harbaugh in this instance, when you're feeding him and you're saying, okay, it is fourth and two at the opponent's, 36 yard line. And this is the game situation. You're feeding them information. You're saying, okay, this is uh, you know, plus two win probability. If we go, if we go for it here and you're, you're giving them those parameters, whether or not that coach's intuition about how the game's going, about how the team's looking, about the defensive setup, all those different things, whether or not that is adding value or not. Daniel Stern he was pretty adamant about the fact that he thought it was adding value. And, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful towards, towards coaching. And it's not that I doubt that coaches have value. And I think they, they have a ton of value when it comes to building the right finely tuned algorithm, like super, super important, bringing in all the different factors that go into it, like the exact ball positioning. I think that's like very, very important. You know, not all fourth down and ones are equal. Uh, bringing into play what matters as far as trends on what defenses may be looking for based upon, you know, your previous plays and, and how you should set up the sequencing and things like that. I think coaches, tremendous, tremendous value that they're adding there. But if you can bring those in to a properly weighted algorithm, I am still of the opinion that that algorithm will perform better than a coach because the coach is going to still overvalue their hunches, their feelings, their little, the little things that they're seeing on the field, which on the grand scheme of things matter, but probably don't matter as much as they think. You know, when, you, when, when they have a unique piece of knowledge based upon their expertise, you're going to overvalue that unique piece of knowledge. So this is really going into the fact that one of the difficulties of getting people to buy in is 
a distrust in these algorithms. Even if we tell people that when we run, when they, when they run studies, they find that algorithms alone outperform algorithms with expert adjustments. People still won't believe it when they go into it. So it, it's, it's getting around that. Now, I don't know if we're ever going to be getting around that on coaching, but I thought it was interesting that it's talking about this phenomenon, which is really comes into play with all types of experts. But it says, you know, the goal should always be accuracy, not individual expression, not the coaches having their stamp on what's going on. Is that the goal? Is, is the goal of a coach to say, I want to put my personal stamp on this game? Or is the goal of the coach to say, I want to make the best decisions possible. And that's number one. And I think as more and more coaches realize the latter should be what you're going for, maybe they'll start to turn more and more over to feeling comfortable with what the models and the algorithms are telling them. But anyway, this is going to be an exciting book that's coming out. I'll read it when it does. I don't think it's out yet, but again, it's going to be called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. And I want everyone to check that out. Um, that's the first part of the stick to sports segment. The second part I want to talk about is almost a flip side of what I talked about last week. Now, last week I was talking about this conspiracy theory. You could call it that was happening with jeopardy contestants in a Facebook group and whether or not it was, or was not a white supremacist sign that was going on. And my point there was that the selection bias and our inability to look at the unlikelihood of an event based upon the compounding different effects of, of the likelihood of something happening, uh, the compounding probability of something happening makes people overestimate the likelihood that there is this conspiracy. Now, the big thing that's been in the news this last week is kind of going towards, towards the other side, and that is the fact that for the coronavirus, COVID-19, there is now a retrenchment of the opinion that there's no way this could have been a leak from a lab in Wuhan. Now, just for, for a little background here, there is one of the few world um, labs in Wuhan to study these types of diseases, including diseases that fall into the general coronavirus um, category. And there were some people who talked about that possibility. Now, I think there was a conflation of the idea that saying there could have been a lab leak was the same thing as saying this was a man-made virus, which people have pointed to as being very low probability, and that that was the same thing as saying it was a bioweapon from China. So what's interesting is number one, there's this, again, there's a selection bias, but it's going the opposite direction here where you are getting, depending upon where you are now, you're not getting this everywhere, but when we're talking about, I'm always going to be talking about these kind of mainstream media sources that we're talking about here. You are getting a perception that a quote-unquote conspiracy theory in this case, in the, or just any theory, you're getting a perception that's less accepted than what it actually is because from a cost-benefit perspective, if you're an expert that believes that this could be a leak from this lab, and there were experts who believed that last year, being especially vocal about it isn't necessarily worth the cost-benefit analysis. I mean, for instance... Uh, we're looking at one of the one of the bigger people who was written about talking about this. Not an expert here, uh, but Senator Tom Cotton was pretty interesting because I found there were some articles about him discussing this, and this is in February of, of 2020 that I found at the Washington Post. Where it's funny they even changed the title on this. Initially, it was he was repeating a debunked uh, theory. Now it says it's that scientists have disputed. So they actually changed the, the title on here because I think we're seeing now that more and more people are starting to look into this as no longer debunked. And what's interesting about this is I found, again, this conflation of what Cotton was saying, where if you look at it, it actually, actually sounds fairly reasonable for what he was saying there, which was saying it's very likely something that occurred in nature, but there's a chance that it came from the lab and there's even a small, small, smaller chance that it was human engineered. 
And what happened was if you get articles written about you and putting you in the same category as, you know, Tom Cotton as being some sort of partisan hack. And let's face it, that universities are probably going to going to skew a little bit towards the other side of the political aisle. You're just not going to want to speak out about this. And it's also pretty interesting because one of the articles that they link to here about debunking this theory, and this is another article they have, this is experts debunk fringe theory linking China's coronavirus to weapons research. So a person that they quote in here, Richard uh, Ebright, a professor of chemical biology, they quote in here as debunking Tom Cotton, like being one of the people who's debunking Tom Cotton, saying that he believes it's not an engineered virus, actually found an interview with him in other sources, including the Daily Caller, which is a, you know, a conservative publication, where he's being quoted around the same time as saying he believes it's possible that it was a lab leak. So again, these things are being conflated. You have the same expert in two different articles, one of them debunking, supposedly debunking lab leak because he's saying it couldn't have been man-made engineered, and another one promoting lab link, lab leak because he says it is a possibility. So these different news sources are kind of taking what they want from these experts. And one opinion is being elevated in main, in a mainstream source. And that is the debunking saying that this is wrong. And another one is being relegated to a, to a more fringe source. So, so again, why is this all really interesting? Well, the social media phenomenon that I talked about last week of the selection biases, if you're, if you're seeing one particular one particular side of the equation, you're just, you're going to, you're going to think that a theory is 99.5% of the experts are saying X and only 0.5% of the experts are saying Y, when in reality is any expert who believes Y is just not going to speak out enough because they're going to get shouted down. They're going to get reported on as maybe being a fringe theorist who's talking about debunked theories and so on and so forth. And it almost, it also went as far in this situation as Facebook had part of their their COVID-19 policies is if posts were reported who who talked about this lab leak theory, not just like a bioweapon theory, but just the lab leak theory itself, those were subject to being taken down by their, their content moderators. And they just reversed that decision this week. So now they are going to allow posts on this where before it was disallowed for the fact that it was seen as being such a conspiracy theory. And again, there are two different things that are coming into here with, with Facebook. Number one, like I mentioned, the skewed sense of what is the reality of expert opinion, right? Because Facebook, you know, whether they're doing it, I don't know how, the, how they're making these decisions, right? I don't know if they're doing it literally where they're saying, if we believe it's above or below X percent probability that it's true, we're going to label it a conspiracy theory and then we're going to shut it down. Uh, how much are they bringing in, you know, whether it causes harm or not into the equation, all those sorts of things. So number one, they have to be making that assessment. And if they're making that assessment, they're getting probably bad information, the people that are looking at Facebook because they're not getting the full story of what experts actually think. And number two, you're weighing shutting down True, eventual true information for the benefit of potentially cutting down on these conspiracy theories going out. So I just thought that that was really interesting that Facebook had to reverse itself and switch things here. And the last thing I'll say about when we're judging these things, I think there's this thing called the, the Gell-Mann amnesia effect that has been documented. I'm sure people have heard about this, but what it basically is, and I think a lot of people have experienced this, when they see something reported on that is from their line of work, you read an article on, like if I read an article about, I remember reading an article about the DFS controversy that happened years ago. What was going on with FanDuel? They had their own data there. And then an employee of FanDuel was making money at DraftKings, or maybe it was vice versa. I don't remember. And there was a big controversy there. When I would read articles about it, I'd say, you know what? This guy has no idea. What, <laughs> these people have no idea what they're writing about. They're getting it wrong. They're they're over-sensationalizing what's going on and so on and so forth. But then the amnesia effect is you do that, you read something about something that you understand and you think this is bunk. And then you move on to another subject that you're not an expert on. And then you read the next article and you forget about those doubts that you had about the overall system of how things are working. 
And then you just read it and believe what you're what you're reading in there. And I think that's happening a lot. And it's very difficult to figure out from people like at Facebook is how much should I believe of the articles that I'm reading? Because because that's how we're really getting our content. You know, how much are you really going to be able to get through a full paneling of open, honest opinions from experts on these types of things and not being too credulous of what you're reading, especially in a hyper-partisan environment where you're, where you're getting the selection bias of what you're seeing could end up to making these decisions that you eventually have to reverse and then it not working. All right, I've hit about an hour here. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Please rate, review the pod. Like I said, going forward, hopefully we have less of my ranting on the stick to sports subject and more interviews with people working at NFL teams. You can look forward to that. Uh, hopefully some more news going forward too. And if you have any questions for me, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. Otherwise I'll be talking at you guys next week. Thanks so much.